New York City is home to thousands of restaurants and grocery stores, catering to every style of eater, from the tame to the adventurous. With so many different cultural options to choose from, it's no wonder New Yorkers have such a varied palate. Hi, I'm George Bodarki. On this morning's Cityscape, we're talking to three New Yorkers who think outside the box when it comes to food. From a historic astronomist who samples the eats of the pioneers. I don't know why there aren't beaver farms. Beaver meat is delicious. It's rich like lamb, but even less gamey. To me, it's the perfect combination. To an urban forager who sees the park as a produce section. You see the milkweed is growing all around here, so I don't feel bad just taking this little tiny one. And it's um, really good if you dip it in a batter and fry it. That and more coming up on Cityscape right now. A lot has changed in the last 200 years or so, including the way New Yorkers eat. In the book, Urban Appetites, Food and Culture in 19th Century New York, author Cindy Lobel explores those changes. She joins me now in the studio. Cindy, good morning. Good morning. So what inspired you to delve into this topic? Oh, uh, well, I found a lot of discussion of food when looking at documents in the 19th century, which sort of surprised me. I, I wasn't really expecting that. And so I wondered why they were uh, seemed to be equally interested in the subject of food as we are today. And that kind of got me looking into all kinds of sources from the period. And then it just sort of expanded out from there into really a study of New York, actually, and the growth of New York and how that then affected the way that people eat. What materials did you use to put this book together? Oh, so many. <laughs> I looked at newspapers. I looked at diaries and letters, which was really fun. I got to kind of go through people's mail. Uh, I looked at uh, lots of reformers' tracts talking about food, um, especially for the working classes and the poor New Yorkers. Lots of new magazines that came out in the 19th century that covered the kind of food ways and food landscape of, of New York and the United States at large. How different was the food New Yorkers ate in the 19th century compared to today? Well, not so different, actually. I, I mean, what happens is that there's a big change from the beginning of the 19th century to the end. So over the course of the 19th century, you have a real shift in terms of not so much the food itself, but where it's coming from. So there's a big expansion as a result of technological changes and transportation changes that allow food to come to New York from much, much farther afield than it previously had. And so the food is the same. You have you know, all the same kind of raw materials that you have today, but where it's coming from and the kind of uh, shopping that goes on and, and the way that it's eaten in restaurants, for example, that really is changing over the course of the century. So in the earlier part of the 19th century, it was largely locally grown. That's right. Um, in the early 19th century, all food is local because it, you, you had to be able to get it to the market without it spoiling. And so until you have faster forms of transportation that allow them to get food to the market without spoiling, it has to come from pretty local areas. Local for New York markets in the 19th century is Long Island, New Jersey, Upper Manhattan. Uh, and then that, that also expands um, as, the, as the period moves forward. Many of us today are, of course, familiar with the Union Square Green Market, mm -hmm. but markets, as you mentioned, are nothing new in New York City. You write a lot about the markets of the 19th century. How were they different? Yeah, so 
in many ways, we're kind of trying to return a little bit to how things were in the beginning of the 19th century. So our interest in farmers markets or uh, in locally grown produce and food, in food that isn't really touched by industrial processes, that's really in many ways a hearkening back to how things were in New York and elsewhere as the 19th century begins. And uh, in the early 19th century, as it was in the colonial period in New York and other cities, food could only be sold in the public markets. They were very highly regulated. There were six public markets in early 19th century New York, and fresh food had to be sold in the public markets, especially meat, which was sold by licensed butchers who were licensed by the city, um, fresh produce that came in from the, the farms around New York City uh, was sold in the public markets. And you had groceries, but groceries really sold more dry goods, and they kind of supplemented what you had in the public markets. And everybody shopped in the public markets. So the earliest uh, hours of the market had the best produce and the most expensive produce. So the wealthiest New Yorkers would go in the morning very early. And then as the day progressed, uh, the produce got less quality and also less expensive as the day moved forward. But everybody would go to them. That's quite different, actually, from, say, Union Square Market, which is pretty expensive and has has some basic stuff, but also some stuff that you really don't find everywhere in all of the groceries of, of New York. That said, this idea of food deserts, neighborhoods often low income that lack access to fresh fruits and vegetables, existed in the 19th century as well. We know them today, of course. That's right. I would say it actually uh, emerges in the 19th century. We often think of geography and uh, social class being tied together in terms of food quality as a very modern development. But we actually start to see that developing in the 19th century in New York. Because what happens is that in the early part of the of the 19th century, everybody shops at the public markets, as I mentioned. But as the city grows, the public markets can't serve the needs of all the New Yorkers and of the growing city. So you start to have uh, private food shops pop up. And at first, some of those food shops are illegal. Like the butchers, as I mentioned, meat had to be sold in the public markets. But in 1843, the city deregulates the markets and allows for meat to be sold in private food shops around the city. So uh, you start to have um, this geographical stratification of the city as it grows. Um, you have... Uh, middle-class neighborhoods and wealthy neighborhoods and poor neighborhoods. And you also have these food shops that are servicing the needs of those neighborhoods. So not surprisingly, the wealthiest neighborhoods have the best food shops and the poorest neighborhoods have the um, poorest food shops. And in tenement districts and in working class districts and in slum neighborhoods, the, the groceries are really more like liquor stores that kind of serve a little bit of food on the side. Um, and so the food is really not the focus and it's not very high quality. And so you do have geography and class really working together to determine the quality of one's food supply. Now, you mentioned restaurants earlier. When did restaurants start to become part of the scene in New York City? Yeah, so this is another thing that I always I always say, you know, restaurant New York's is not born with a gat guide. Restaurants have a history <laughs> in New York, um, and uh, it emerges over time, and it and they really evolve to uh, to serve a need. So, in the beginning of the 19th century, there really are no freestanding restaurants in New York. There are a few victualling houses, there are taverns, of course, but there are, the taverns are attached to lodging. But beginning in the 1820s, you start to see a smattering of freestanding restaurants, and then they really expand in the 1830s, and then uh, really exponentially in subsequent decades. So by the 1850s, you have thousands of restaurant options and public dining options of various kinds in New York. Were these restaurants largely for the upper classes of New York City? Well, no. The first restaurants that emerge are really more for, I would say, the middle classes for... Um, 
clerks and uh, businessmen who are who uh, are now living too far from their work. So the restaurants kind of follow two tracks. The early restaurants in New York. One um, track is the commuter restaurant. And the other is uh, the restaurant that caters to tourists that comes out of the luxury hotels. So those restaurants, the luxury hotel restaurants, certainly do cater to the elite. But the freestanding victualling houses and eating houses that open up in the Wall Street area and the financial district really are catering to this new uh, character of the urban commuter as the city spreads geographically and people are living in one place and working in another. How did that affect family dynamics and this idea of families sitting down at the table together for a meal? Yeah, it's a real shift in uh, not just in New York, but elsewhere as well, where you have people who gathered every day, families gathered every day at midday for what they called dinner because uh the work and home were either very either in the same structure or very closely connected. But once you have uh, the separation of work and home and an office or, or factory, uh, people are leaving the house, especially men, are leaving the house to go and work, um, or working-class women as well, of course. And uh, this reunion happens not in the midday, but in the evening. So what happens with dinner is that it gets actually pushed back later in the day. Instead of being the midday meal, it's the evening meal. And that becomes the kind of daily reunion for the family, particularly the middle class family, uh, which is separated uh, during the day. And then the midday meal either is abandoned or becomes lunch. Weren't there restaurants in New York City that were for men only? Women were not allowed. Yes. Well, the first restaurants that come up, these uh, businessmen's uh, short order houses, are really not uh, places for respectable ladies. <laughs> um, and they do not welcome women, um, whether they're respectable or not. Uh, they're really, uh, they're like fast food places. And they really emerge to serve this need to cater to the businessman who wants a very quick lunch, uh, you know, 15 minutes in and out, very, very loud, very... Um, boisterous environment and not very tasty food. It was really not a leisurely meal that you would find in these six penny or short order houses. It was a very quick meal that would just serve the purpose of feeding you so you could go back to work uh, in the commercial districts. And they did not cater to women um, either by policy or because there really weren't a lot of women around in those areas of the city during the day. They really were becoming the financial district that was really in the 19th century dominated by men. Then you also had uh, restaurants that come up that are um, that serve liquor, and so women who were concerned about their reputations really didn't want to go into those restaurants, or they were barred from going in um, because uh, there was kind of a fine line between, um, uh, or there was a, a actually a close connection between restaurants and other commercial leisure and prostitution in 19th century New York, and so you had to be very careful as a middle class woman or as a woman concerned about your reputation about where you went. And so, yeah, restaurants were kind of a male bastion until, of course, these savvy entrepreneurs see a market for the ladies' restaurant and you start to have the opening of ladies' restaurants in the 1830s that cater specifically to middle class and upper middle class or upper class women. Um, and men could go into the ladies' restaurants, but they actually had to be escorted by a lady. <laughs> You referred to these fast food eateries of the 19th century as six-penny establishments. That 
Is that because that's how much it costs to get a meal, six pennies? That's right. The dishes were six pence, so you could you could actually run up quite a bill uh, if you got a, a, a several six-penny options off of the menu. But yeah, each each of the main courses was six pence, and then there were sides that, that you could get. So you could get six-pence roast beef, for example, and you could get a side of potatoes, or you could get um, uh, a side of, of another kind of vegetable. Uh, and um, they tried to raise the prices, actually, in the 1850s, and... Um, it, people just ordered less. <laughs> so they went back to six pence. So they were six penny houses for quite a while. Uh, that was a set price for a long time, like the subway. You can pretty much get a meal at any time of the day here in New York City. Late night eating, of course, is a very big deal here in New York. Was it a thing back then? Could you get a meal late at night? Yeah, from a pretty early point, you have the uh, the city that never sleeps emerges. And uh, yeah, you had late night eating houses uh, by the mid-19th century. You had cake and coffee shops. The cake and coffee shops, the most famous cake and coffee shop, actually this was in the 1830s, was Buttercake Dicks, which opens to cater to the newsboys and the editors in uh, along Newspaper Row, which is right around City Hall Park. And they were up very, very early um, or late, <laughs> late night or very early morning. And so uh, you had these um, all-night eating houses that would cater to them and also along the docks of the city. So, you know, people were working uh, late at night or very early in the morning. And so uh, uh, restaurants and eating houses opened up to cater to them as well. In your book, you talk about oyster cellars, and you say they were the 19th century version of today's pizza parlors. Yeah, I, I, oyster cellars were quite ubiquitous in 19th century New York, and New York really uh, was um, famous for its oysters and for its oyster houses or oyster cellars, and uh, they were concentrated also in particular areas. So Canal Street was one area where you had a lot of oyster cellars, and uh, they were sold on the Canal Street plan, which was all-you-can-eat. And the oyster cellars were kind of marked by a balloon that sat outside uh, or that, you know, hung outside, almost like a barbershop hole, um, a red and white striped balloon. And uh, people came to New York for the oyster cellars, and they wrote about the oyster cellars, and they were very, very popular. You talked earlier about how liquor was a big part of dining out in New York City. How did the temperance movement come into play in the evolution of restaurants and bars and even groceries? Yeah, so the story of the changing food patterns in New York is also very much linked to reform, of course, in the 19th century, as are many uh, you know, developments in terms of commercial leisure. So the temperance advocates really went after the liquor groceries. They really waged a campaign against them and uh, tried to shut them down, not really very successfully. <laughs> Although what eventually will shut down the liquor groceries is just changing patterns in terms of how uh, food is, is sold. And, and also, of course, the rise of the saloon, where some of those, those groceries will just go into, into, into becoming saloons. And the temperance advocates also did not like restaurants necessarily. And you actually do have temperance restaurants that open up in New York. And also temperance boarding houses because the hotels and the restaurants were so much linked together. So you would have uh, temperance houses that opened up to cater to travelers who didn't want to stay in a hotel or go to a restaurant where liquor would be sold. So these two things kind of went together a little bit. Now, of course, as you mentioned at the top of the interview, they didn't have Zagat back then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but were there journalists reviewing restaurants? Yeah, the Restaurant Review is more of a 20th century uh, development, but there certainly were, were journalists describing restaurants. So the newspapers are really a rich 
source for learning about the the restaurant landscape in 19th century New York. So when a new restaurant opened, they might talk about it or they would cover the landscape of German restaurants in New York or uh, the Six Penny Houses. There's um, a kind of a fun article in the New York Times called uh, How New Yorkers Sleep Uptown and Eat Downtown, which really in the 1850s, which really identified the restaurant as a kind of commuter phenomenon. Any 19th century restaurants still open today or at least carrying the same names? Sure, yeah. Uh, there And there's some cachet, of course, to being able to trace your, your restaurant's history back to the 19th century. So probably the most famous is Delmonico's, which uh, is um, in the original space. Well, one of the original spaces. Uh, the original Delmonico's actually burned down, and then they rebuilt it in the 1840s. And today's Delmonico's on Beaver Street downtown in downtown Manhattan is in that space. Uh, it has not been continuously open. Delmonico's actually closed during Prohibition and then kind of reopened here and there. But certainly um, it, it is hearkening back to that, that very rich and long history of Delmonico's restaurant in New York. For the late 19th century, there's some steakhouses like Peter Luger's, the old homestead. So once we get into this later part of the 19th century or the early 20th century, you have um, some of the older restaurants that are still around. Cindy, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Cindy Lobel is the author of Urban Appetites, Food and Culture in 19th Century New York. I'll have some clam chowder followed by beefsteak on rye, pumpkin pie with cream and coffee. You're listening to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning. I'm George Borarki. Today, we're exploring some of the less conventional appetites of New Yorkers past and present. Like author Cindy Lobel, our next guest also has a fascination for the taste preferences of 19th century urbanites. Sarah Lohman is a historic astronomist. She joined us a while back to talk about her own culinary research. First of all, what does it mean to be a historic, historic astronomist? astronomist? Exactly. You know, it's a, a phrase that um, a friend of mine coined, and he was speaking in this instant regard to the kind of trend for old-timey bartenders. You know, like suspenders and handlebar mustaches are coming back, but with that also an idea of mixology pre-prohibition and what we were drinking in the 19th century and looking to that to re-inspire contemporary drinks. And I took that idea and began... Um, applying it to food. Because I think up until this point, we've been looking geographically for new foods, new inspiration, new combinations. And I wanted to start looking to the past. I knew that, in a sense, the past was another country, and they did things differently there. And I wanted to look at older recipes, older flavor combinations that we're not used to anymore, and see where there might be a nugget of something really wonderful and unique, something that seems new, even though it might be 200 years old, to inform my contemporary cooking. Where does one look for 19th century recipes? In 19th century books, a lot of the time. Um, I have an ever-growing collection of cookbooks. Some of the early ones are reprints and are available inexpensively on Amazon.com. The first cookbook published in America, American Cookery, which is from the 1790s, that's a Dover book. You can get it for a couple bucks and a reprint that you can mark up and fold and do whatever you need to do. And I have a, a large collection of books from the turn of the century, too, which are period books, too. And and I love pamphlets, too, little, you know, grape nuts or Crisco or Jell-O. I really love kind of 
around 1900 pamphlets too I find really, really interesting. And I also look to other culinary historians working different time periods, working with different topics. Often they'll mention something in passing, a recipe, a moment, a flavor combination that I'll find intriguing and then go and do more research on, see if I can find some um, references from the time period and then try it out in my own kitchen. So from all over the place, oftentimes I'm not making a direct recreation of a recipe, but I'll read through a recipe that's 200 years old and think, huh, you know, that's that's really something there, and then try it out, see how I can reapply it to something that's contemporary. What flavors were most prominent in the 19th century? Well, it, it depends. That's actually something, an idea I've been intrigued with and something I'm doing quite a bit of research on right now because much as... Um, fashionable clothes and flavor fashions changed in the 20th century, so they changed in the 19th and the 18th and the 17th century too. And a lot of it had to do with very specific moments that dealt with availability or scientific discovery or exploration. That really affected what was popular. So if you're talking 1800, then you see a lot of nutmeg, a lot of mace. You see some cinnamon too. You see rose water, which we didn't use vanilla at all. We used rose water for the most part when we were using baking, which today is mostly associated with Middle Eastern cooking, but for a long time it was uh, very much a part of European and American cooking, too. Um, You see a lot of brandy, too, and that changes by the 1850s through 1900. Vanilla happens. We're using almost predominantly nutmeg in 1850 instead of cinnamon, um, which is just a much more popular spice. Um, There was a disease that hit the grape crop, which we produced brandy from, so you couldn't get brandy anymore, and we lost a taste for it. So there are different things that that really changed and often forgotten flavor combinations. One of my favorite um, recipes that I've revived is the first recipe for Christmas cookies, um, which was printed in the first American cookbook in 1796. And it's a sweet cookie recipe that uses coriander. And coriander are the seeds of cilantro. And I'd never, ever seen that before, using coriander with a sweet instead of a savory food. And the, the cookies are delicious. They're citrusy and interesting and wonderful. So that's what I look for in the past. Okay, Sarah, you've eaten beaver. I have. You've eaten bear. I have. And you've eaten moose. I have. These are things that people ate in the 19th century. To to varying degrees, absolutely. Bear was fairly common in New York City markets. In the West, it was especially prized because bears are very fatty. So if you were a pioneer, you bring down a bear, you've got cooking fat that might last you six months or a year. In New York, they were more of a delicacy, but you do see it on menus. Um, I first came across it when I looked at an 1842 menu to celebrate Charles Dickens' visit to the city, and he was served roast bear. I can't tell if this was something that people liked or was like, we're going to show off how American and wild we are. We're going to serve him roast bear. Um, The moose, yes, you could get moose in the markets in the same way you could get venison. The one thing that I discovered that you couldn't really get in New York City markets was beaver, because in the 19th century, beaver was more important for its fur than it was for its meat. Which the references I've seen to it kind of say, well, this is unfortunate that the only people who get to eat this meat were the trappers who were trapping the beaver because it was really delicious. But no, it wasn't appearing on restaurant menus. Um, In fact, we almost hunted beavers to extinction by the end of the 19th century, too. So we wanted hats. We wanted coats. We wanted mantles. We wanted beautiful things like that. Where does one find beaver and bear today? 
the best way to do it is to find a friend in Alaska. That seems to be what's working for me. I have a good friend from college who moved up there after graduation, and um, she regularly sends me mystery packages where I'll open it up and I won't even know what it is. And there's this paper that challenges me to cook it and cook it for my friends and then write a blog post about it so she can read all about it, too. So that's where a lot of my meat comes from. But um, there is a black bear overpopulation here in the Northeast. So there is a five-day hunting season in New Jersey. So if you're truly adventurous, it's usually the beginning of December. You can go out and get yourself a black bear if you want. How do you know, Sarah, that you actually got the recipe right? Well, you don't. And again, that's one of those things that you can spend obsessing about to the kind of infant decimal degree of accuracy. Sometimes it's really fun to do that. Um, there is a hearth in Park Slope at the Old Stone House in Brooklyn. So if I really want to do something accurately, I can go out and I can cook in their hearth. And the thing you miss from a lot of these recipes is wood, wood smoke. You know, wood smoke was in everything. Now, when you're in the middle of it, you don't taste it. But that's a prominent flavor that would have been in every single thing that you cooked. Do I want wood smoke in every single thing that I cook? No, not necessarily. So there is a degree with, okay, let's get this absolutely right. And there's a degree of, this recipe is interesting. What can I do with this in my queen's kitchen, on my gas stove, with my roommates buzzing around me all day? And that's the direction that I tend to go in, although I enjoy the, ex the explorations of getting things absolutely accurate. Sarah Lohman, thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure. Thank you. Sarah Lohman is a historic astronomist here in New York City. Her blog is 4poundsflower.com. You don't need to turn to hunting wild bear to add more wild flavor to your dishes. You could just take a stroll in the park. Cityscape producer Veronica Volk did just that in a tour of Central Park with an urban forager. Foraging, for me, brings to mind hiking boots and rough terrain. So when I met my guide in Central Park wearing sandals and no safari hat, I felt woefully unprepared. Hi, I'm Ava Chin. I am the author of Eating Wildly, Foraging for Life, Love, and the Perfect Meal. I'm also an associate professor at CUNY at the College of Staten Island. Ava Chin is also a self-proclaimed urban forager. An urban forager is somebody who finds wild plants and mushrooms that are growing in city centers. Ava deals mainly in this city, New York, including Central Park. She is part of a community of individuals who look outside of their corner grocery or restaurant to find food. She says people turn to urban foraging for any number of reasons. I think people who are interested in knowing where their food is coming from, who are maybe slightly suspicious of our industrial agriculture, um, and who really like to be in touch with nature. I think that these are the kinds of people who find um, urban foraging so inspiring. Before our expedition, I thought our interview might be a little more physically taxing. But as Ava and I walked along the northeast side of the reservoir, we never even had to leave the path. Every 50 feet or so, she spotted something that made her stop. I never come back home empty-handed. There is always something that is growing here. And in fact, it's often kind of astonishing how much stuff is here. I mean, you can see we've only gone, like, how many yards, and already we found a bunch of things. So um, here, I'm going to show you a few more things. Okay, so these are the flower buds to milkweed. Um, there are a ton of them all around. Urban foraging may sound like a foodie fad, but Ava is dedicated and has been for much of her life. 
Even as a kid, she had a fascination with urban plant life and said she used to dig up weeds with a spoon in the courtyard of her mother's building. There's some way that uh, growing up in a large apartment building in the middle of New York City uh, kind of primed me for being a forager. Maybe if I grew up in the suburbs and had access to a garden, maybe I would just be a gardener. Throughout our walk, Ava seemed hyper aware of the microphone I held and the attention it attracted. So I asked her if what we were doing was actually legal. It's definitely by the Parks Department, and the New York City Parks Department is definitely frowned down upon. In fact, it's within the rules and regulations that you shouldn't uh, take any of the plants. But the truth is people forage all the time. Undeterred, Ava picked many bulbs and buds and leaves and flowers and berries. She told me how to make lamb's quarter salad and staghorn sumac lemonade and even how to use plantain weeds not to be confused with the banana-like fruit as a topical mosquito bite itch reliever. To the untrained eye, these tree leaves and flowering weeds all blend together and fade into the background. But to Ava, they all make up a varied and abundant cornucopia offered up by the city's green spaces. These weedy weeds that I grew up seeing from my childhood, from the parks and playgrounds, that I used to frequent in Queens, they, they felt like almost like familiar friends. So that I felt like foraging helped me to be reacquainted and, and fully connected uh, to New York in a way that I had never been before. Ava Chin is an urban forager, a professor, and author of Eating Wildly, Foraging for Life, Love, and the Perfect Meal. You can find more at avachin.com. For Cityscape, I'm Veronica Volk. A quick note to our listeners, while there are many edibles growing wildly in city parks, there are also more threatening flora hiding in their midst. Any aspiring urban forager should partner up with a guide before they venture out on their own. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Past episodes of the show are available in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for show updates and New York City tidbits. We're listed on both as WFUV Cityscape. My thanks to senior producer Veronica Volk and producer Taylor Nolk. I'm George Bodarki. Have a great weekend. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.